Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, stock and stock, stock valuation. As I had uh, mentioned last week, there will be a quiz on Monday of next week. Surprise quiz, so please try to be surprised by it. And I will be giving you quizzes about every week or so from here out, trying to get you as many of the possible problems that you would see on the final just to help build you up so that you can do well. I mean, that midterm, you actually did really surprisingly well, comparatively speaking, but it was purely bimodal. There was this group in the upper 70s, 80s, 90s, and then there was this group in the 40s and 30s, and uh, you won't know who they are because those are the ones who are never bothering to attend. But there you go. So. Uh, keep in attendance and also focus on in your studies on prepping for the quizzes and then studying them afterward because those are great ways to prep you for that final exam. Aside from that, um, trying to think of there's anything, I can't believe we're just about a month or so out from the end of the semester. Oh God, I'm going to miss you. No, I won't, but. Uh, here we go. Have a look at the numbers today. And uh, it was just one of those boring days. The stock market at the, uh, here at the end is sort of making a rally. It was, but oddly enough, the Dow is up the most, a full percentage point up. And then the S&P, which is usually up more, is not up as much, only two-thirds of a percent. And then the NASDAQ has finally groveled into positive territory. So whatever the news is, it's not bad, it's good news, but it's kind of the news that is important only to the largest corporations, kind of, that kind of news. And crude has found its way back into a 72-79 band. I don't know how long that's going to last, but it's, the gas prices should have come down quite a bit, and they have not at all, so this will probably give them an excuse to jack up the, the gas prices. Uh, now, gold and silver are both down, so the, uh, those crackpots who are waiting for the apocalypse, apparently they didn't see any reason to get excited today. And the euro is uh, USD is still costing a little less than a dollar eight against uh, to buy euro. So there's, I mean, I I keep saying that the dollars uh, the exchange rate is going to make it to a dollar ten, the dollar depreciating against the euro. I don't see that happening. More importantly. I'm a little, it's weirding me out. I'm seeing more of these articles about how the, um, well, the U.S. dollar is going to re be replaced as the world's benchmark currency. Last week, I saw that the, these 
the quote-unquote experts saying that the Indian rupee was going to replace the dollar, which I had to stop reading the article because I had a little uh, respiratory infection and I couldn't laugh as much as I wanted to. But now this week, there's this talk about how the, um, what is it, the uh, euro is going to replace the dollar. But then I got a couple of people who are normally pretty sober they sent me this thing, there's apparently a rumor going around that China, Russia, and Iran are all conspiring to dethrone the dollar as the world's benchmark currency. And on its face, okay, you've got the Chinese yuan, you've got the um, Russian ruble, and you got the Iranian currency, it's so so meaningless, I don't even know what its name is. Yeah, they are really in a position to prepare for the end of the dollar. Here's the thing, if you hear those kinds of rumors, think of this. The People's Bank of China, the uh, Central Bank of Japan, the Bank of Europe, the House of Saud, Central, Central Bank of Saudi Arabia, and uh, the central banks of the other, many of the other Arab states. Their balance sheets are just swimming in dollars. We buy their stuff. Those dollars end up in their central banks. So, and then in a case like China, well, if they don't have dollars, what they've used those dollars for is to buy treasury securities, our borrowing. So in other words, the balance sheets of these central banks are essentially sitting on a giant scaffolding of dollars. Any country that would, if the dollar collapsed, the balance sheets of about every major economy on earth would collapse as well. No bank, in, no country in its right mind is going to do that. Essentially, we hold each other hostage in the way the world is working now. So don't worry about the dollar being replaced in America in its twilight years. It's just not going to happen, not unless we want to end up in a financial apocalypse. <sighs> yeah, the dollar is going down right now, but... I mean, that's just the ups and downs. Uh, interestingly, London, uh, well, Tokyo first, they had a surge in the early trading. It wasn't anything spectacular, but it was just a mild, and then once the good news had passed, it just kind of drifted and petered out at the end. And interestingly, later, when the sun came up in uh, London, about the same pattern. There was optimism, and then finally it just sort of wore out, and it just kind of slid off. Oh, I should have mentioned over here, uh, where the hell are the bonds? There they are. The benchmark 10-year uh, bond yield is up today, which means the prices are down. It, 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 that's actually a fairly hell Well, no, it's not. I mean, that's three, four four-tenths of a basis point. No, no, I'm looking at the wrong thing. I'm sorry. That's, oh, actually, that's f 15 basis points up today. So the price is going down. Uh, the There's some selling going on, and that looks like it's just going into stocks. 
not anything spectacular. It's, it's sort of a tired day today. Of course, I took a position in a highly risky, in my fund, fund fund, I took a stupidly risky position, and I, I was down $500 about 10 minutes after I took the position. I thought, yep, there we are. Fortunately, it's back up again, so good times. Um, oh, I want to show you something. Let me show you something here. Uh, let me go over to Google. Uh, yield curve. I want to show you. Um, the yield curve is horribly inverted. That should mean here comes a recession. And yet we still don't see it. And right now, this is as of uh, Friday. You can see see that drop off in the yield curve. Yeah, that's bad. However, if there's a glimmer of hope, you notice that this drop off is flattening. Do you see that right there? See that five seven ten right there? It's trying to turn back the right way. Look up here. See up here, about a week ago, how it was a really it was steeper in the five seven ten leg. It's getting shallower, so the yield curve is trying to come back up to the normal rising, at least on that leg of it. So there is some optimism right there that this yield curve might fix itself. And we might dodge a bullet. This would be the first time in history that a, an inverted yield curve did not lead to an economic pause or a recession. And also, even more dramatic, this is the, this is the steepest yield curve inversion over the widest uh, band of legs uh, ever. And I, well, maybe we are in a new era here. Who knows? But now, the lectures this week are about stock, and it has two parts. There is the background, what, what is stock, and then there's the math. Now, the math is just arithmetic kind of math, and you can do it in Excel, you can do it on your calculator. It's not terrible. There's one little knot in it about horizon values, and that's Wednesday. This one is more of a, you could think of it as a tedious lecture about all the different aspects of stock and the names of stock and board of directors. At the same time, it also has a, uh, an interesting story that goes along with it. And there are a couple of stories. Now, whenever you read a textbook about this subject, what I'm going to talk about here today, it can be pretty darn dry. And I will bring in what I've done. I have done this. Uh, if my count is right, 24 times I have done the starting of a corporation. But it starts with you, sir. You just go around and you mow lawns. You get the money, you pay your uh, expenses and keep the rest. Now at the end of every year, you're, you're a sole proprietor. 
you're all at risk. If you cause damage, then they can take your house away or whatever. <coughs> but at the end of every year, you fill out a 1040. Now, the 1040 has your income. How much did you make? Well, you're going to get your income from your job, your W-2 forms or your 1099s, whatever you get. But you're also, if you're running your own little gig, your own little side hustle, you're going to fill out a Schedule C. That is what happened with the side hustle. Your revenue from it, your expenses, and how much you kept. It's not a hard for it's not difficult. It, it can get a little complicated, but it's not bad. Now, that bottom number at the Schedule C, okay, here's your 1040. That's your main form. Now, you're going to file the Schedule C, work out the Schedule C. Rev minus cost is profit. Now, that profit will go onto your 1040 as other income. What did you have on your W-2? What did you have on your 1099? What did you have on a Schedule C? And you'll put that on there as your extra income. And you'll total ordinary income. And if it's a simple form, Taxes. You'll figure out your tax based upon the total ordinary income. However, there's another thing that has to happen. This Schedule C profit goes over here to a Schedule SE. You'll put it right there, and then you'll times by your social security tax and you'll put that with your ordinary tax to get your total tax bill. I mean once you get the hang of it it's not hard and you can do one of the things like TurboTax for business and it'll just crank it out for you. But the bottom line is that, and I speak from personal experience, this is kind of a shocker because at the end of the day, you have a pretty hefty tax bill, what you weren't expecting. You were having withholding on your W-2, you thought, wow, that'll do it. OMG, where is all this extra tax coming from? Well, it's coming because you had that profit, and it's also coming because you owe Social Security tax. It's even worse than that because if your Social Security tax that's collected on your W-2, the employer pays half of that. But you would pay the full brunt of the Social Security tax that was coming off your Schedule C. It's not have these with your employer, it's all yours. And what this means in practical terms, and I'm speaking here from personal experience, is that, you know, you get this business model, well, figure out what your price is going to be from how, your, how much your suppliers are costing, your wholesale, your, uh, your additional expenses. Oh, God, no. 
you have to think about that, that whopping tax burden from you just running your side hustle. It can knock you dead. In one year, I was teaching, but I was also running my uh, corporation. And geez, Zooey, I mean, I ended up with, I thought I'd have a, yeah, I'm going to get a tax refund. And I ended up owing close to $4,000, for God's sake. It just nearly knocked me dead. So you have to think about pricing at the very top of your business decision making. Not in the traditional business model kind of sense, but you have to think, I've got this blind side that I have to pay, and it's not just federal. You're going to pay state. You'll probably pay a municipal income tax. All of those from what's reported on your 1040. <coughs> so it kind of, you sit there, oh my God. So keep that in mind if you're deciding to go out there and run your own side hustle that your tax bill is going to be a little bit surprising to you because it's not just the ta extra tax from making uh, from the side hustle it's also the social security tax which can knock you dead. I'm trying to think what it is now it's like 14-15% it's good god and you wear the whole thing yourself your employer doesn't pay half of it. So there you go. Keep all that in mind when you're going out there. Now, at some point, and I don't recommend that you do this, unless you're dead serious, you can go to a corporation. You can become a corporation. But when you become, at the end of it, you are no longer the corporation. You were mowing lawns. That was you. You might have given yourself an assumed name, fictitious name, but that was just you. The process of becoming a corporation and being a corporation means that you become separated from the gig. It isn't you. It is its own entity. Now, let's start. First things first. Now, I've, I said this early in the course, and I'm somewhat repeating myself here. Corporations are not federal entities. You incorporate in a state. You, the, corporation, the state in which you incorporate means you are domestic in that state. In all other states, you are foreign. So when I do a show, my corporation... I don't do it. Well, I do it. But my co corporation, Emergent Light Studio, Inc., does a show in Missouri. I am a foreign corporation operating for a while in, that, in Missouri. In New York City, I am a foreign corporation operating for a while in that state. I do a show in... Uh, someplace up in Chicago, I'm a domestic corporation doing a show in my domestic, uh, in the state of domicile. Okay, now, make sure you understand that because it actually does have legal implications. Think about this. Suppose that I've, I'm doing a show down, let's say in St. Louis. Okay, 
someone comes into my exhibit area and trips over one of my artworks, glass shatters, the person is cut. Okay, he, he or she sues me. In what, what state has jurisdiction? The corporation is domestic in Illinois, but the incident and the citizen of Missouri was the injured party. Now, there are rules that establish who's who in the zoo and where the jurisdiction lies, but you have to keep this in mind that you are no longer just a free spirit floating around the world, enjoying the scenes and selling some nice stuff. No, you actually have to consider that the world has suddenly become divided between the domestic corporation and the foreign territories in which it operates. Uh, it, just a few pieces of advice from someone who's been doing this for a god-awful long time. Now, the state of incorporation. You do not have to incorporate in the state in which your nexus of business resides. You can choose to incorporate somewhere else. Like, for example, when I did this as part of my consulting, I would create corporations for clients. The go-to state for incorporation was Delaware. Why? It was simple. Delaware has an incredibly mature, stable, well-developed corporation law. It has its own court system overseen by magistrates. So disputes are much, the judges understand corporations a hell of a lot better than they do in some podunk states. Everything is like an engine, a machine uh, there with respect to corporate charters and all that kind of stuff. It's very mature, so that was a good state. I guarantee you that there are states you do not want to incorporate in. They are toxic. And I won't mention any names now. South Dakota, Florida. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you want to choose a state. Now, let's get down to what state. Well, Delaware has become expensive AF because every, everyone wants to incorporate a corporation in Delaware. So it co it's costly, the filing fees and all that kind of stuff. And you have to hire a registered agent in the state to represent your interests. Wow, it's not really pleasant. It's, it's still a good idea if you're going to do a big time kind of enterprise. But if you're just a small entity starting your little corporation, probably it's, uh, you, you might want to look elsewhere. Now, the, uh, Illinois. I created a corporation right in front of a class uh, 11 years ago, right here in Illinois. They were very advanced at the time. Everything was online. You filled out the form and then filed it and almost immediately it would come back uh, to you. Now understand, at any government level, you do not get a filing approved. There's no such thing as approval of a filing. You will get qualified. The form will be qualified. That's their way of 
that's the equivalent of approval. So how does it work? Well, back in the day, you would fill out, it was sheets of uh, pages on a, uh, and then in triplicate, you would make it into triplicate and then you would put it in an envelope and you would send it to the Secretary of State of the state you wanted to incorporate in. And then after six weeks or so, you might get a letter saying there are deficiencies or you might get back one copy that has been with the stamp of the Secretary of State saying qualified. Okay, now this document is called the Articles of Incorporation. The Articles of Incorporation. It has all of these different requirements. The name of the corporation. And once you got the name, you have to decide after it. Like in my case, I did it with the class. I said, okay, as a sole proprietorship with a fictitious name, it was called Emergent Light Studio. Now I have to put a, a name after it comma Inc, comma Incorporated, no comma, co, period, no comma, company, comma, LTD, period. You have to decide which it's going to be called because you have to declare as part of the name that it is a corporation. Kind of ruins the flow of your company name. I gave my students the vote on what would be the appended uh, declaration and they chose comma Inc, INC period. So anyway, you also, where its business, principal business location is, the names of the organizers. <coughs> uh, you have to give the name and address of one person who will be the agent for service of process. In other words, to whom do we send information, notifications, bills, fines, uh, all that. So you have to say that in the Articles of Incorporation. You make a declaration that upon the filing of the articles, the rights of the organizers are removed and the corporation is then governed by a board of directors as specified by the bylaws. And the bylaws are this big thick document. I'll mention it a little later, but then there's one other thing in the articles. You make a statement, the capital stock of this corporation shall be divided into And you say the absolute top number of shares that could ever be issued. Now you can make it any number you want. <coughs> I could say the capital stock of the company shall be divided in, 
into one hundred million shares of common stock authorized. Now you could also declare other types of stock, preferred stock, classified stock, but you have to make a number there. You can never exceed that number. Now here's a problem, and I'm telling you a practical one. You see, I could make a corporation that had a thousand shares authorized, but I could never issue more than a thousand. That would really limit me if I wanted to do an IPO. Matter of fact, it would make it impossible. On the other hand, I did a corporation. It was, I incorporated in the state of Ohio. And I, you know, I had my college and graduate education and I knew, no, I'm gonna make this 100 million shares. And that's what I did, 100 million shares. And I got a bill at the end of the first year, the franchise tax, which in Ohio was calculated on the number of shares authorized. Now think about that. A penny, I, I don't recall what it was, a penny a share for a hundred million shares. I got that bill. I. I mean, I didn't stop shitting for days. I mean, God almighty. I had no idea. And I thought, I mean, I actually had to just simply collapse the corporation. I just gave up. There was just no way. <coughs> now, so do be careful about, now in Illinois, it's not like that at all. It's not. Uh, so, I... That there, there's that. Keep your eye on the details of these articles. Now, what happened in the uh, what I was telling you about incorporating my company, Emergent Light Studio? Did it in front of the class. They had the old overheads at the time with the thing that came down, and they watched me. It was online, which was very progressive for that time. You just filled out boxes. It was the Articles of Incorporation, but you just put this here, this here, this here, all of these things, and you, uh, then you just clicked a submit button, which uh, I was trying to act really brave, but I, this is the first time I had ever done one electronically, and I, okay, so it has a submit button here, oh, I knew that, click, and I thought, you know, it'll just, and then it went to some kind of a scanning system, and it just looked for what was in all the boxes. And within like a minute, it came back qualified. And that fast, I had created a corporation. It had a case number, which was essentially the ID, ID of, the of the qualification. I should keep saying approval. Of the qualification. Well, that just blew me away. In other words, the Articles of Incorporation, once qualified, are a birth certificate. The, my company, Emergent Light Studio, had 
just emerged from the womb and it had become a legally recognized self-identifying entity under law period it it is the essentially the qualified articles of incorporation are a birth certificate of a legal person you are no longer this is not my company it is its own <coughs> think about it this way um I'm trying to see who it was in here. Oh, yeah, I remember now. It was you, madam. You're my daughter. That night you were born, well, I was exhausted afterwards. I mean, I was just exhausted. But once you had crossed the womb and came out, a birth certificate was, was filed and qualified by the state that made you not your mother it separated you right there in law so that you were your own person under law you say well wait a minute what about the parents the same is true with parents and a board of directors they are not that thing they are they have fiduciary duty to make sure that it prospers, absolutely. But their fiduciary duty is set by law, and it does not mean that they are that entity. That birth certificate for a child, that articles of qualified articles of incorporation for a uh, company, they declare that thereafter that entity is responsible for itself within the realm of fiduciary duty as I said and I'll talk about that a lot later in the course now the next thing that happens right away you take that case number the way it worked and I was surprised because there's another step I went that same class just after that after I got my nerves together I'd actually just created a corporation uh, go to the Department of Commerce of the federal government and you you fill out a still filled out a similar form and it was online what was in this box on the articles what was in this box on the articles what is this what is that and you fill that out and you give it the case uh, number and within a matter of minutes they came back at the federal level with an FEIN, a Federal Employer Identification Number. <coughs> Excuse me. Exactly like what happens when you get your Social Security number. This is the federal government's, not approval, it's recognition that there is a legal entity that must have a legal unique identifier that's what a social security number is it is a recognition that there is an entity under law that must have this thing and so the, i can't emphasize this enough if you decide you're going to make a corporation 
you've got to appreciate that it is the creation of something that is no longer you. I had a problem in my consulting because I would have you know, a group that had run a business and they had gotten a hold of me and they said, we want to go public. Well, to go public, you have to be a corporation. <laughs> yeah, 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 more of that, okay? But once I had created it, they just couldn't let go of the fact that it wasn't them. That company wasn't them. Well, we've done all this work and we brought it to this point. Yeah, well, okay. I did a lot of work to create that child, but that's the end of it. You let, and getting them to let go of this mindset that it, they are the corporation. They are not. That corporation is something other than them. Now, th th that's the background. That's the creation. If you want to know, it's, you can do it yourself. Be careful because you, you can hire a, some hack attorney who can probably make as many mistakes as you. If you hire a full-blown attorney who specializes in corporations, you're going to pay a large amount of money. So be cautious however you proceed. But then there was one other part of this that I, I, I feel like I have a responsibility to warn you about. There are basically two separate kinds of corporations. And now I guess there's a third I don't know anything about. A C-Corp and an S-Corp. Now the C-Corp is the one you usually think of. It's the one that you are taught about. In my classes, in your accounting classes. The difference is remarkable though. With an S-Corp, and I'm simplifying this, it's just a Schedule C kind of thing. With, uh, with an S-Corp, You've got your revenues, your expenses, your additions, inventory, backup. It's all just very straightforward. And the profit is immediately assumed to go proportionately to the shareholders. Now, you can't have many shareholders. I think it's like 36 or something like that. But there is no tax at the corporate level. It just, the profit is distributed. And each of the shareholders gets a K-1 saying, this is your share of the profit. And you pay tax on it. That's all it is. It's very straightforward. Now, a C-corporation, you go through the whole, uh, all the generally accepted accounting principles consistently applied, and you've got your uh, dividends that are after taxes, you've got your retained earnings, what flowed back in, all that kind of stuff. None of that is in an S corporation. And that's why it's a little bit of a divergence between what you learn here in any good school and what happens in an S corp. I'll tell you, it is bizarre. And this is where I cover up the microphone for a minute. Because there is no, in an S corporation, there's no accumulation of retained earnings. There's no plowback. It all just goes to the, the shareholders. That's what you say. 
TurboTax just does it that way if you do uh, S corporation business TurboTaxes. It just all flows down to the uh, K-1 and then the, the shareholders are responsible for putting on their 1040s. But the reality is, I mean, you're just sitting there. My company is growing, but the retained earnings is not allowed to change because it's assumed that any profit is all sent to the shareholders. And, and the reality isn't that at all. So the reason I'm covering up the microphone right now is this. You keep two sets of books. You keep a C-Corp set of books to see what the reality is, and then you keep an S-Corp set of books that you use to do the fill-in-the-boxes in TurboTax for an S-Corporation. That's just how you have to do it. And so far, I mean, no one's ever said anything, but I kind of live in fear that someday I'm going to get my ass kicked. But, well, this corporation has been growing. Why haven't you reported that? Mitch, that's because you won't let me report it. I'm supposed to have no retained earnings growth. Just whatever I put in at the beginning, that's your retained earnings. <sighs> so, I am not recommending that you violate or bend any law. Notice I have my recorders on it. Yeah, okay. Figure it out for yourselves, damn it. <sighs> but you get the idea here. It, it, so don't get me wrong. Now, be careful, though. I'll tell you one last warning story, and then we'll get to other stuff here. S-Corp. When you incorporate, you probably should know whether you're going to be a C-Corp or an S-Corp. The S-Corp is obviously better if you're a little company with just a few shareholders. However, when you file your first corporate 1040, you have to make the declaration of S-Corp status. You have to make the declaration. That way, the IRS knows what's going on with this flow of the funds and the K-1s and all that. Okay. I did, this was back 2012, when I filled out the first corporate taxes for Emergent Light Studio, Inc. Well, I was pretty proud of myself. Wow, I did the corporate taxes. And I did all the forms that TurboTax wanted. Four years later, the IRS comes down on me. They said... You're filing S-Corp tax, uh, tax forms, but you never declared that you were an S-Corp. Yes, I did. Uh, it was a TurboTax. It was a, I did, I did. And fortunately, the guy had mercy or he was drunk. I don't know. He said, you use TurboTax to do this, and I'll bet you filed electronically. Yeah. And he said... I'll bet you didn't know that TurboTax does not file the S-Corp declaration form in the electronic filing. You have to print it out and mail it to us. Oh, God, what are you going to do to me? You know? He said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Print out the original 2012 tax form and make sure that you sign it 
and then you fax it to us, and then send, also mail the hard copy. And I mean, I faxed that mother, like, I mean, I printed, I was pulling the paper through, and I got it to them, and uh, he gave me his number, and I called him, and he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We are going to backdate your declaration to 2012. Oh, thank God. But do be careful about making that declaration. And to this day, if I'm not mistaken, TurboTax and the other one, um, I can't remember what it's called, uh, tax cut, they do not send that if you do an electronic filing. You still have to f mail it and sign it, wet signature and all that, and uh, send it in. So that was a little bit of an excitement in uh, my otherwise dull life. So just a few of those things that you probably won't read in a textbook. You probably wouldn't hear from most professors, but these are, there are so many little trips and pitfalls and just things that you didn't even think about. Well, I want to do a corporation. Okay, great. I want to do a, an S corporation. Okay, that's good too. And then all the little weird things that go on in doing this. You just have to watch your step. Um, trying to think, there was something else I was going to mention here. By the way, I should just quickly mention that you've got a corporation with a name. That does not protect that name. Someone else could create a corporation and have the same name, but just comma something other than ink. Don't, don't assume that that gives you some legal protection. You need to trademark your corporate or service mark your corporate name to protect it fully. Now, that you should hire a trademark and patent attorney to do it. I did it on my own, and I was actually a little bit surprised. I filed the form electronically, and um, they came back with only one deficiency, uh, and it was simple. Uh, the name of the company is Emergent Light Studio, and I wanted a circle R with that. And they said, you have to file, you have to make a declaration that you are not claiming trademark on the individual words. Uh, it's only on the block of words that you're uh, getting, seeking trademark protection. Okay, I filled that out and then I got my trademark. So that's why you'll see on the work artwork that I do, you'll see Emergent Light Studio circle uh, R. So just be aware of that too, which most people don't know. Hence why you'll have a lot of corporations with the same name. Okay, enough of that. Now, you are the proud shareholder in a corporation. And what does that mean? Well, the first thing is there will be bylaws. It's a document that describes the framework of how the company will work at its top levels. The names of the board of directors' positions, 
It has to do with elections. You can get down to all kinds, what the duties of the different directors are. But overall, you have the shareholders. They are the top. The thing, though, is that, that those are not individuals. The shareholders is a body, a single thing. Well, I'm a shareholder, so I have... No, you don't have any rights other than those that are uh, manifest in the uh, bylaws. You are just a little piece of something called the body of the shareholders. A corporation, and this is getting old school, this is, well, forgive, my, forgive me for my more liberal friends who listen to my podcast, this is hardcore conservative. There is, the corporation has one and only one goal. That is to maximize the wealth of the shareholders. The corporation doesn't have any other goal other than to maximize the wealth of its owners. The corporation doesn't have stakeholders. Well, we've got to balance the needs of the shareholders against uh, our, the needs of our customers, our suppliers, our, our Mother Earth, and all that. No. By virtue of maximizing the wealth of the shareholders, you will benefit the society more, provided that you stay in compliance with laws and social norms. But even there, realistically, corporations will violate law to the extent that the extra revenue they make is less than the extra cost that they will bear from the risk. The great icons of corporate history, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, George Soros, Howard Hughes, Elon Musk, they don't consider anything but the value of the corporation. If they break the law, they do it because they have assessed that the cost that will be incurred is less than the revenue that they make. That's why the overlying framework of the nation must be the rule of law. And the rule of law has three parts. Certainty, you're going to get caught. Celerity, it's going to happen quickly. And severity, it's going to hurt like hell. If you cannot guarantee that, then the corporations, just like people, will play. So if we're looking for a basis for ethics, it must be framed in what is the best for the shareholders. If you break a law and you are fined millions and millions of dollars, well, guess what? You have violated the, the uh, objective of the corporation. Let me give you an example. One of my favorite places to eat, White Castle. Have any of you ever eaten at White Castle? 
Yes, you go there for diarrhea. <laughs> Cramps. And everyone asking, Lou, what stinks in this car? Bitch, get in. No, I, it's just the way it is, okay? <laughs> but White Castle, in early 2000s, federal and state laws put this rule into place. You could not use electronic devices to identify your employees. You can't use fingerprint, you can't use retinal scans. Well, White Castle said lol. So time cards, retinal scan. I believe it was retinal scan or thumbprint, something like that. And they just did it. No one's catching us. No one's saying anything. Well, just this year, it all came back to them. White Castle was taken to court. And White Castle said, oh, you know, it's just a violation. $3,000 fine, something like that. And the court said, no, it's not. It's for each employee, for each time you did it, since you started doing it. In other words, we're talking possibly even hundreds of billions of dollars in liability. That is the rule of law, sending a message. F around and find out. We could have done that with people like Gates and Jobs and Musk, but we don't. And so they proceed along lines that look like that's how you be a successful businessman. You break the law or you're an asshole. Well, if we had a stronger rule of law that treated the powerful as, as it treats the, uh, the weak, then maybe we wouldn't have this kind of a framework. But that's your decision, not mine. Uh, the shareholders vote for the board of directors. And the board is where the big decisions of the company are made. Who is hired for the executive management? What the dividends, what the dividends going to be? Are we going to take on this massive new project? The, the, the big, big decisions are made at the board. And then the board hires the executive management. The CEO, the COO, the CFO, the CIO. Okay. So now, here's, here's, where, here, here's where it gets into the details of the board of directors. Now, this depends upon the bylaws, but this is the, pretty much the standard, is that, uh, let's try it this way. You, sir, are a share. You own one share of common stock. Okay. Now, that gives you one vote for each position on the board. Now, a simple board, a really simple board, would have the top dog, the president. And then it might have one or more vice presidents. Now, their duties, these people's duties, are laid out one by one in the bylaws. And I've written bylaws. You have to be very detailed. This is what this one does. This is what this one does. 
you will have a treasure you will have a secretary make no mistake about it these are very serious positions remember what I told you about Sarbanes-Oxley these guys have to sign those 10Ks and 10Qs so if there's a lie these guys go to prison or at least they get fined and then you might have some other name positions and then you'd have members at large They, they, they're on the board, they vote, but they don't have specific duties. Although I, I do have to say that in the bylaws I have written, members at large, oh no, you don't get to just get to sit there on your fat ass. A member at large does this, this, and this, or something like that. So anyway, <coughs> so call this President A, the Vice President B, Treasurer C, Secretary D, and there's a member at large, E, okay? So, you with one chair get to vote one, get one vote for A, one vote for B, one vote for C, one vote for D, and one vote for E. for each share that you own. Now some bylaws actually allow you to concentrate. You could actually focus in some, in some bylaws. This isn't true of all corporations. But in some, you could actually focus all of your five votes on the president's position. Uh, well. I think the current president of the board is an asshole, so I'm going to throw five votes to the competitor, that kind of thing. And now there is a kink in this, but the first thing is proxy, P-R-O-X-Y. The current board, every year they're voted. This is the annual shareholders meeting. So the current board, that would be what we call a slate. And that slate might send you a proxy. Sign this and so we can use your votes to vote for ourselves. So you don't have to go to the annual shareholders meeting. You can just say, yeah, you're doing okay. Now, a quick side note before I go on. The United States model of board is, goes back centuries, several centuries. It's classic, hardcore, conservative, free market. Now, speaking as a, as a, a controlling interest in cor uh, corporations over the years, we have all kinds of regulatory agencies, laws from the feds, the state, the municipalities <coughs> yelling at us, do this, do that, we'll find your ass and all that. But the reality though is that the federal government, first of all, corporations are not federal entities. 
in our model, in the U.S. model. So at the level of making laws about boards of directors, that's not really going to happen. That is very different from how it is in other parts of the developed world. In Europe, in the Eurozone, corporations, the, the, the government, the overriding bodies of either the countries or the EU itself, they say, okay, board of directors, you must have so many outside directors, or, and you must have this kind of a makeup as far as maybe diversity or whatever goes. They'll even, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, it's Germany where the law is that the board of directors must have a board member who is in the government overseeing. If you think about it, that would keep a lot of chicanery. Uh, you know, the board couldn't talk about doing naughty things because there's a government, there's a Fed right there listening and being a part of it. So this whole topic falls under a relatively new aspect of finance called corporate governance. It's gotten so important that, I'm not sure if I mentioned it, but here at this very well-ranked business, uh, business college, uh, we actually, our last, I think it was our last professor we hired, her specialty is corporate governance. In other words, how do we move toward a more global, more equitable model of corporations? The reality is that here in the United States, many boards of directors are still a bunch of old white guys locked in a room smoking uh, uh, stinky cigars deciding on matters. That's just the reality of it. It is changing, though, and our guidance here within academia, where we are saying, all right, here's what we see in other corporations around the world, and here's what's successful, here's how we can employ this, here's how we can modify bylaws so that we have more of this outside influence, so that it's not a bunch of insiders deciding what to do and then hiring their butt buddies from Wall Street as the executives and overcompensating everyone. Here's how we can move away from it. Now, obviously, we can't force anything, but there are a lot of good corporations that are now listening to us and saying, tell us, talk to us, teach us. What can we do to make more inclusion, more diversity? And at, and, uh, and at the same time, more success. That's the bottom line. Look, it's all about maximizing wealth, uh, shareholder wealth. How do we modify corporate governance in this country consistent with making the shareholders better off? If you come to them with some, well, I feel that we should do that, they're not going to listen to you. But if you give them the bottom line and it works and you've got the data to back it up, then they listen. At least some corporations do, and it's really happening. It's probably one of the bright spots in the uh, otherwise rather, uh, forgive me for the word, incestuous landscape of the top levels of corporate America. That yes, there are corporations that are working to make a better, uh, a globally better world. 
and all that kind of good stuff too. Uh, but uh, taking a, taking my soft liberal side away here for before I get too sick of myself, uh, let's talk about something here. One thing that I should mention is that um, there are different kinds of stock. Now, on Wednesday, I'll mention preferred stock. Preferred stock has no voting. So it's kind of out of our stream for now. On Wednesday, we'll do some math for intrinsic prices of common stock, intrinsic prices of preferred stock. But that's kind of out of it. But I do want to caution you. Cla what, what the book calls classified stock. Class A, Class B. And I swear, I saw, and I can't remember, you know, if you've looked at a balance sheet down there in the uh, owner's equity section, they have that listing on the left side column, the number of shares outstanding of the different classes of stock. I saw one that had a class C stock, and I thought, what the hell is that? Here's basically how it works out. The, some corporations, not a lot, but some, have a class of insider stock. I think the book calls it founder stock. Whatever you want to call it, it has super majority voting rights. So in other words, class B would have one vote per share per position. The class A would have 10 or 50 votes per share per, per position. Let me show you. Go here to Yeehaw Finance. And I've shown you this one before, so it's nothing new to you. BRK. Let's try that again. BRK. Well, there is BRKB, the baby Burks. One vote per share per board position at every meeting, uh, annual shareholders meeting. Okay, but then the big Burks. Whoops. Hello, kitty. Yeah, there's your damn stock. Those are super majority voting. Warren isn't gonna let any piss-ass little shareholder decide who runs the corporation, Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, I bought me 10 baby Berks. Well, good for you. Now, go fart in a hurricane. That'll teach that hurricane. No. But a, a full-blown Burke? You know, I was always wondering. I don't know if it would be legal or not. If I created a little ETF where everyone puts money in and when we've raised about $460,000, the group buys a full-blown Burke, a Burke A, and then we all go to the shareholders meeting and we muscle our way into the dinner of his insider cronies. Hey, Warren, how you doing there? I got me and my 80 friends here who bought one Burke. Boy, well, I guess that might not be a good idea. <laughs> 
uh, Buffett is getting so old, I'm afraid it's his, his geezerliness is contagious. Okay, but other companies, uh, Ford, the family, and then there's a few other ones along the way uh, that I could uh, talk about too that have insiders. That does not guarantee that the corporation couldn't be taken over by a black knight. And the last part of this I'm going to tell you about is takeovers. Now there are some mergers and acquisitions that are friendly where the two companies buy each other's stock or one of the companies buys the stock of the other company and fully absorbs it. Uh, Schwab uh, merged with TD Ameritrade, but it was really a takeover. It was a friendly takeover. And the reality is that the, the resulting company is really TD Ameritrade. Schwab is, was just hungry for those awesome, that platform of TD Ameritrade for the experience depth of its retail traders and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's friendly, but you could also have a hostile. See that slate? You guys, you guys all get a proxy. Sign this so that the slate of existing directors can get it. Well, another thing could happen. You, madam, are a black knight. You start buying shares of my company. Now, at some level, you're going to have to disclose to the SEC I've acquired over a certain interest. And then everyone, uh-oh, take over. Of course, every time you're buying, that's pushing the stock price up. And then when the Wall Street boys smell this, they're going to start buying the stock too for the takeover. And you're going to send out a proxy. I want to get rid of all of these miserable insiders. Your stock price is going nowhere. They're paying each other massive salaries. Their executives are a bunch of idiots. So you're going to make a play for my company. Of course, I see my job on the line. So I have, I'm not going to be happy about this. Because if you win the proxy war, you're going to fire my ass. You're going to fire all of us. So I'm going to have to put in some poison pills. One poison pill. Well, it's kind of a poison pill. I'm going to find a white knight. You. Why don't you start buying my stock? You know, we can start sharing our operations, working together. You start buying my stock. That way, they, she can't proxy to you. You're going to say, go to hell to that. And you're also, by buying that stock aggressively, you're going to drive the price of each share up, and it's going to make for a really fat meal for you to swallow. Okay? That's one, the white knight. Other poison pills. Well, we had a board meeting and we have passed a rule that if any of us are fired, we get a nice fat golden parachute, 50 million each. Oh, that's gonna be costly to you. Okay, another one. Well, we were thinking of taking on that big capital project, risky as hell, but you know we're gonna to have to borrow $100 million to do it, issue 30-year bonds, and start building a teleporter, you're going to say, oh, FTS. One, you're driving up the risk of the corporation with that stupid-ass project. Two, you're leveraging the corporation. We now owe $100 million that we didn't owe. 
That's going to make the corporation riskier because you've thrown the capital structure into yeehaw land. You see the poison pill? There are all kinds of them. I mean, <coughs> so, and that is when it gets fun, is seeing the war. Because at the end of the day, in a proxy war, the winner is probably going to be damaged as hell. It becomes what's called winner's curse. Have you ever been on eBay? As I told you before, I'm an eBay hoe. There will be bidding on something, and in the last, it's worth $20. And there is a 30, 35, I'll say like hell. There's some blue-haired old lady over there in Poughkeepsie who's driving up that bid so that she can have that damn thing, and I want it, I need it. So I will bid that mother up to $50, $60. By God, I won. I jumped her bid with two seconds left. Yeah, put that in your Depends diaper. Okay? Sorry, I'm, I get into it. But you understand, it's not worth that. It was the winner's curse. Winning curses you to something that was far less valuable than what you... That's all I have for you today. I thank you.